Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We learn this directly from top industry leaders out there in the industry today. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. And today, we'll be covering part two of 2018 summary and outlook for 2019. In the first half of this episode, part one, I mentioned how I started Data Futurology in April, May 2018 with the goal of helping professionals in the data space to advance their their careers. And I set myself a goal to release one interview a week. And these interviews had to be with people right at the top. So chief data scientists, chief data officers, chief analytical officers, or equivalent. So people with a lot, a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge of the industry so they could share their stories, their learnings, their struggles, their challenges, their high points and their low points. So we could all learn from their experiences. It's been a fascinating journey so far. I really want to thank each and every one of the listeners of Data Futurology and everyone who has sent in or sent me your feedback in any shape or form. Some people have been sharing summaries or snippets or episodes that they've liked. They've been sharing them on Facebook, on Twitter, LinkedIn, on Instagram. And I really thank you for that because that really helps us get more listeners and get the learnings and the message out to more people. Others have been giving us uh, reviews on iTunes and the different podcasting apps. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Other people have been sending me messages emails and direct messages with their feedback and that has been absolutely fantastic i love hearing your stories and what you've learned from the podcast and how it has helped you in your career one of the things that i mentioned at the start of part one i'll also mention briefly now is that we're taking all of your feedback and we're looking to improve the show as a result we want to make it more helpful for you so it adds more value so you enjoy it more and it helps you in your career so some of those feedback were around the introductions were too long so we're showing those people said that the interviews were too long and there's a lot of podcasting apps that that a futurology is on such as Spotify, iTunes, slash Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We worked really hard to get on pretty much all of the main podcasting apps. So please search for Data Futurology on your favorite podcasting app. And in that one, you're able to download the episodes, listen to them at a faster speed. So you can listen to them at 1.2 speed or 1.5 speed or even two times speed, which will help you get more bang for buck, more value in the same amount of time and this year I'll also be looking to create more content myself and provide you more of my thoughts my learnings my views and this is sort of the first episode around the only last thing that I'd like to mention is that this year we'll be looking for more sponsors it can be companies or organizations so if your company or organization is interested in becoming a sponsor please reach out to me and as an individual you can also help support the show through Patreon. So we have a Patreon page and I'll put the link on the description. If this show has helped you in your career, it would mean the world to me for you to be a supporter on Patreon. 
Okay, so jumping into the overview for 2018. In 2018, we released 34 episodes in total covering data science leaders from healthcare, finance, gaming, sports, consulting, startups, utilities, government, retail, firefighting, natural resources, fashion, and high-tech slash web companies. It was a fantastic year. It was jam-packed. I hope that you really enjoyed it. I had so much fun speaking to and learning from all these people. Every single episode, I walked away with new knowledge and just impressed. You probably heard it in my voice. I was just so impressed every, every single time. And in part one of the 2018 summary, we went through episodes 1 to 18. So for the summary of those episodes, please go back and listen to part 1. So now for part 2, we start with episode 19 with Vlad Kazantsev. He's the head of data science at Wuga. This is a company that makes online games and they've made among many others the Facebook game of 2017 as in the the most popular game on Facebook for 2017 called June's Journey. They've made Pearls, Perils, Tropicats, Jelly Splash, and a bunch of others. Vlad is a super interesting guy. He came from a strong background in statistics, but then he worked in visual effects and computer graphics. And he actually worked on Hollywood blockbusters such as Avatar, Dark Knight, and Happy Feet. And then he got more and more into data science, all the way to head of data science at Wuga. Super impressive guy, very technical, very knowledgeable. And we spoke about driving change in an organization, in a complete organization, driving change through data science. How do you help an entire organization make data-driven decisions, becoming data literate? And in those, some of the really important parts is to make sure that the data science team is not a bottleneck for the business. He emphasized this so well and really makes it a priority in his teams and wherever he works. So under that, we spoke about, you know, the importance of speed and delivery of work and reproducibility in data science. We spoke about how do you get teams to keep innovating for customers. He has a semi-embedded model where he's sharing data scientists by putting them into different parts of the business, but he's maintaining a, a strong engineering hub or centralized data science team as a hub and has sort of the hub and spoke model. And we even go into the details of how that his team splits their time from dealing with stakeholders and resolving business problems and then doing the overall innovation or new work to be introduced. We spoke about increasing data literacy in the organization and uh, what are the skills and elements of a successful data science team. Some of the things that really stuck with me from the chat with Vlad was he gave a really great tip of having an O'Reilly book subscription. So for Safari books online and by having that he has or anyone is able to get access to hundreds of technical books on demand and you can have a search functionality across all the books. So any any problem that you're trying to tackle, anything that you want to learn that's quite specific, you're able to find that knowledge across multiple of the O'Reilly Safari books. I've found that super, super valuable. So besides all the great content that he walked us through, I found that as a really, really great tip. If you're applying it as well, let me know how that's working for you. So that's episode 19 with Vlad Kazantsev. 
Then we have episode 20 with David Greenberg. He's a senior VP and head of data analytics at Bank Mobile. David was a crowd favorite. He got so many messages of people literally just saying how impressed they were with David and just thanking for having him on the show. They messaged him as well and he let me know about the really warm welcome that he got in the data futurology community and I completely see why. So he has had an amazing career studying in physics, working as a consultant, having his own tech startup in the 90s. They created this software to annotate videos. So if you think of coaches of teams, they could annotate videos and pass that information around the team on analyzing plays for marketing companies and companies creating that video content. They could annotate within the video what they wanted to keep or how they wanted to edit it and then they could pass that along using workflow in the software to get approvals within the company. He was doing this in the 90s. I was super, super impressed. He's worked in non-for-profit in education. He worked very closely with people that were very senior in the Clinton administration in the US. He was saying how much he learned on managing corporate politics from the people that came from the political industry. And when we dove into those details, he said every word choice, every sentence structure in an email, in a discussion, everything has so many ways that it can be interpreted. And uh, he learned from these people that came from the political background, he learned how to dissect and read into people's true motivations based on how they were saying things more than what they were saying. And it's definitely a skill that is very necessary for data scientists to learn as we get more connected into the business and as we try to drive bigger business value and change in our organizations. When we were on the topic of corporate politics, he mentioned a few examples of ways that you can almost do corporate jiu-jitsu. That's how I like to think about it, corporate jiu-jitsu, in order to almost corner people that don't want to help you, corner them into helping you and getting on your calls and doing work to advance or deliver your initiatives. And he told us about examples where you go and speak to their superior first or you speak to the people around them or you align their incentives or what they want, you align that with your incentives and how you can get that meeting of the two incentives and the things that both parties want can meet. That was really interesting that he was saying that if you do things properly, by the time you make a request to somebody and they go and complain to somebody else, you've already spoken to that third person and they're on board and when the person that you need help from goes and complains to them about you they go oh, yeah of course you should help them they're doing good or they spoke to me so he has some really really great approaches on managing something that's very difficult for data scientists because it doesn't come natural for us to want to spend time in meetings or dealing with people's issues or bullshit sometimes and he really had some great ways to get around that we spoke about how data is a flashlight that in a lot of corporations, they live in darkness and they have little visibility and that with data, you can start to illuminate the, the dark corners of a company. But it's not like flicking on a floodlight or, or a big light switch. It's literally a flashlight that wherever you focus, you get visibility there. But there's a whole lot of areas in the business that you don't get visibility into. And that, that has its strengths and weaknesses and can cause problems, but that it's obviously quite a good thing and that you will be 
faced, one other thing that he mentioned in that topic was that, and something that stuck with me, is that you will be faced with resistance as you do this, as you expose people or businesses, parts of businesses, with the flashlight that is data. We spoke about creating data-driven culture in your organization and what to do when companies don't know their basic metrics. He told us a lot and quite honestly about the lessons from his technology startups, the mistakes that he made and the things that he did well. And towards the end, we speak about why as analytical professionals, we're in the world of expectation management. And part of that is from the hype, part of that is from non-data literate people seeing data and machine learning as magic huge expectations that we need to manage quite carefully with our stakeholders. So that was episode 20 with David Greenberg. Definitely a great one. And then episode 21 was with Anthony Ugoni, who is the director of global matching analytics and AI at stake.com. Anthony is an industry legend in Australia. He's done so much for analytics and data science. He's a guest lecturer. He edits journal papers and he's in the IAPA organizing committee. He's in committees at, at our different universities. Like everything he's doing is giving back. It was outstanding to get to speak with him, get his career journey. And he was saying how he got interested in data when he was 10 years old by analyzing horse racing data. He didn't go as far as saying that it was to make bets, but he was analyzing this data and creating regressions back from even from back then to predict which horses were going to win different races. And having that level of intuition and being able to think in statistical ways so naturally uh, it was something that I was really really impressed with some of the tips that he gave was that everyone in data science should read an epidemiology textbook and I know that some people have gone back to him to ask which textbook he recommends so I'll put the links on the show notes for that he tells us about his transition from research into corporate and how everything was very new and a complete surprise and one of the other things that I really loved about my conversation with him was the level of empathy that he's shown throughout his career he continually went back to saying that as data scientists, we have to appreciate the gray in business and appreciate people's journeys and what they say, how they look at things is only a reflection of the current knowledge and their background, but it doesn't mean that they're stuck in their ways and that you can teach them and, and help them improve his extremely warm and generous and caring and that shows in his dealings and i know that the work that his team have been able to do is absolutely fantastic it's definitely great to see a leader of that caliber or i guess a leader that is able to generate that much output from his team is somebody who is so warm and caring it was really really great to see we spoke about data science for social good, why analytics professionals are like Batman. That was one of my favorites and how to stand out in data science interviews. That was episode 21. And if you're interested, please go back and have a listen to that one. Then for episode 22, we had Shira Saga. He's the head of analytics and data science at The Iconic, which is a e-commerce business in fashion. Shira is really interesting guy. He's worked in analytics and decision sciences across Americas, the Americas, Asia, Europe, and Australia. 
he's done a lot of consulting and now leading a team in-house and having worked in lots of different industries for some of and working in some of the largest companies in the world. He just has a ton of experience and he's an energetic, passionate guy that is keen to make a difference and do good work. Some of the things that stuck with me from our conversation was around his passion and the importance of building data products and data-driven products, as in helping people access and understand data through web platforms. He's somebody who's been doing that essentially all of his career. And you see that coming up time and time again, that whenever he comes across problems, he thinks about not only the analysis piece, but how to have a really engagement insights delivery platform to help with decision making, either across the organization or with his customers. And time and time again, he's been building these data products, which is super, super interesting. And I think something that is more and more needed in our space in order for us to have maximum impact with our work. He told us about what data-driven product should and should not do and how to prioritize efforts. And through that conversation, a couple of great themes were around making analytics less intimidating and more accessible for users from any walk of life. And then another one was the way that he dives deeply into customer problems by having interviews with them, but also understanding the way that they work and how they go around their day-to-day in order to find the best ways for his products to plug into the person's workflow. I thought it was really great discussion, really fantastic point of view. Then we also look at how to create a data-driven culture, what he looks for in when hiring data scientists, what type of team environment he likes to create, specifically around continual learning. And then he mentioned that he's had quite a fast-growing team, but he's still looking for people. So there's a, in the show notes, there is a link to a GitHub page, which contains a problem and a data set for applicants to try to make some predictions, and then you submit it. And if you do well, then you get an interview. A really interesting way to do it. Fascinating guy. That is episode 22 with Shira Saga. Then we have episode 23 with Mario Vinasco. He's a marketing analytics and data science manager at Uber. I was so impressed with Mario. He's an electrical engineer from Columbia. He went to Silicon Valley to do a master's of engineering at Stanford. Then he stayed to build a career in marketing analytics. He started by working at a bank, not knowing anything about banking or finance or marketing. And he is uh, one of those extremely analytical people that like to understand concepts very deeply. So he likes to understand how things were derived, how was the equation created, who did it how did they get there just understanding the background and the why of things and so essentially he's looking for first principles in the theories and the concepts that he comes across and by doing that continually he's then able to apply it in ways and in fields that unexpected to most people in his time in silicon valley he's worked at intuit at google hp semantic facebook and uber so really high level, uh, super impressive. He's somebody who brought in Facebook embeddings into marketing analytics. Just really impressive stuff. He was saying that some of his main problems in marketing analytics in terms of optimization is uh, spend per channel. 
for Uber, Uber and Uber Eats, finding the optimal point of how much money should go into each channel, and then what are the messages required for each customer segment within each channel, and continually doing testing and improvements across, well, as you can imagine, all the different channels online and all the different customer segments that a company like Uber and Uber Eats would create. He told us around work that he did at Google around people analytics and how they were, uh, when Google was going through hyper growth, they were looking to better distribute the performance evaluations through different panels of people. And the idea was to assign performance evaluations almost at random to different panels. And by introducing a prediction in the system, they were able to give each panel they were getting some an equal percentage of people that would have been doing really well people that haven't been doing sort of average and people that haven't been doing that great in order to get sort of similar levels of similar number of promotions from each group i thought that that was really really interesting we talk about the, the importance of rapid prototyping and creating value for customers quickly and for stakeholders quickly And we talk about the collaboration within organizations. So when he was telling me about how he found about network partitions at Facebook, how he started using embeddings at Facebook, it was essentially from going to a couple of brown bag sessions within Facebook. So I was asking him, I said, do you guys get dedicated time to share your knowledge with other departments or work with other departments and initiatives that essentially benefit the other departments? His answer was like, look, not really, but the sharing of information is definitely encouraged even though it's not part of your KPI or you're not getting any time explicitly for it. I thought that that was really interesting that by having these continual knowledge sharing sessions and brown bag sessions within the organization, people are able to go see what what's the latest developments in different areas and understand how they can apply to their area or at least ask the people working on these new and exciting developments how that can be applied to new areas. And that's something that Mario did time and time again, which I thought it was really, really impressive. One of the things that stood out to me was he had very firm views on the interviewing process and the application process. He said that they get hundreds of CVs a day. I'm sure it's more. (laughs) And he was saying that they can clearly see people who are using the same CV to apply to a hundred places and others who really study the the company, the job ad and what the company needs. And then they tailor their, their resume or their CV for that specific position and that he prefers the latter, which is really interesting. I'm a believer of having the sort of the one CV and using that to apply to a thousand jobs. But obviously in his position, he would be sick of seeing CV filled with buzzwords one after the other and in there he had a talk about the same topic he had a um, a story about a woman that had a cv that wasn't filled with buzzwords and it wasn't the most impressive cv but that she had uh, not only strong data science capabilities but had good eq so emotional intelligence and then she was able to make huge strides at Uber and within his team, even though she, in the way that the current hiring process worked, 
or works or worked at the time, she wouldn't have been a sort of first candidate to be picked. So I thought that that was really interesting that even at places like Uber, there's room for improvement in hiring processes, uh, especially around data science. So we talk a little about that and uh, what things he looks for in CVs and in applicants. If this sounds interesting, uh, please go back and listen to episode 23 with Mario. Then episode 24 is a presentation that I did at a large bank here in Melbourne. It was to their data science teams and their cloud teams. And essentially what I covered in that presentation was five mistakes that I made in building a data science practice using cloud platforms. So it was all about the lessons learned that I had during my time and my previous job. And I only picked sort of five that seemed relevant to where they are or were in their journey as in this large bank, but I could have given them so many more. Like in that role that I had for about four years, almost four years, uh, there was, we had a lot of, we made a big difference in that business in terms of revenue and profit. And the team was punching above its weight in terms of the results that it was getting. And But even within that, there was so many things that I could have done better as a leader of that group. And I will definitely do a podcast on some of the other lessons that I have and some of the learnings and even some of the regrets, things that I thought were good at the time and that if I was going to do them again, they would be completely different. I'm happy to say that I know that that my old team is flying and doing really well and and still making amazing progress and benefiting that business quite a lot. In the future, we'll do a more detailed account of my learnings during that period. And I'll cover, obviously, the positives as well. Like we built a really good culture in the team where there was great friendships being formed. People worked really well and trusted each other. The outputs of the team were well above what was expected from a team of that size. And as I mentioned before, revenue and profit-wise, we were making uh, big, big splashes and big contributions to the business. Anyway, going back to episode 24, mistakes in building a data science capability, we talk about using lean startup principles and design thinking principles in data science. So these two are complementary to one of the earlier episodes where I spoke about agile data science. So besides agile, I love bringing in uh, lean startup principles and design thinking principles. And I see these as the sort of the three methodologies that I mix with data science in order to have focused, quick, and customer-centric deliverables on a consistent basis from my data science teams. We spoke about the importance of staying close to customers and what that looks like in practice. Essentially, how much time to spend with them, when in the piece, how to engage with your end customers, and that sometimes you need to bypass stakeholders in order to get to the end customer. We spoke about a topic that I'm quite passionate about, which is the difference between machine learning for machines and machine learning for humans. So machine learning for machines is the automation piece, and machine learning for humans is a around the transparency, interpretability of how uh, decisions are made in order to help 
humans cover some blind spots in the decision making to cover some cognitive dissonance or errors in thinking in order to make better judgments over time. And then I had a couple of tips towards the end around when you're in a large organization, a lot of people use data only from their business area or only from their division. Something that I did well in the role that I was talking about here when I was working at a bank is that we use data from other areas really well and that we leverage the flexibility of the cloud by staying agile and being able to spin up and take down instances very quickly, even though that was at the time quite against the cloud policy of the organization because they wanted sort of proper builds of everything and we wanted to be quite quick and agile. So definitely some controversy there, but some good points, I hope you let me know. That was episode 24 where I did that presentation around mistakes in building a data science capability. Let me know your thoughts. Then we have episode 25 with Mr. Ben Taylor, who is a chief artificial intelligence officer and a co-founder at Ziff.ai. I gotta say, Ben blew my mind. The stuff that he was saying was so impressive. He used to be chief data scientist at HireVue, which is a company that uses machine learning and deep learning to help companies do interviews and hiring for high volume roles such as um, retail roles and call center operators and things like that and they do video interviews and then they have hundreds of thousands of video interviews to analyze and then i believe they have the track record of those people in their organizations and all this is being fed into their algorithms and during the discussion we get into the issues of bias like gender bias and racism in embedded in the data and in the algorithms and he was describing ways in which they first quantified racism in their algorithms and in the data and then how they went to systematically taking out racism gender bias from their approaches and i was blown away i was so impressed because he mentions in the podcast and i've definitely heard other people saying that either racism and bias can't be identified or that it can't be taken out of machine learning and AI. And that's essentially what I had heard the most. And then in this conversation, he was walking all of us through the ways that he was able to both identify it and remove it from his work. So I was, yeah, just super, super impressive. He also told us about ways that he keeps learning and that he keeps switching. Then he keeps learning and he said that a lot of times that involves switching programming languages and that he does it as a cold turkey he just stops it that he was excellent at matlab i think it was and he wanted to switch to python and he just like stopped matlab and started python and obviously those transitions are painful and slow but that going cold turkey was the best way to do it he tells us about his thoughts and feelings of google's tensorflow and the quote that i love that a lot of listeners picked up and i saw some people sharing it was ben said in the podcast if i was your phd supervisor and you submitted TensorFlow to me, I would fail you. And I thought that was just brilliant. Like, I don't know if I share his sentiments, but I love that he had his opinion, strict opinions, obviously, but he went through and justified them for us. And he was a really good sport around that. He told us about his new company, so Ziff.ai and some of the projects that they're doing, which are 
impressive. Zifter AI has been building a deep learning platform for product visionaries and software engineers. So for non-data scientists to do heavy duty data science using deep learning and some of the applications are amazing. And then at the end of the podcast, we talk about AI warfare in business, as in how AI can weaponize so it can be merged with military weapons and the scare or the dystopia that that can bring. The thinking that he's done on that subject really impressed me. And when he was telling me through some of the scenarios that he's thought of that could potentially happen, I was literally petrified. So having robots having a hive mind, so where the communication between them is instantaneous and they can make individual and group decisions extremely fast by having way more information than humans could have through advanced sensors. I was so scared. For all those topics and more, please go back and listen to episode 25 with Ben Taylor. Really, really impressive guy. Then we have episode 26 with Dr. Sam Robertson. He's the head of research and innovation at Western Bulldogs, which is an Australian football league team over here in Australia. It's sort of the Australian version of NFL in the US. A lot of people would kill me in Australia for saying that, but it's a bit more hardcore but super interesting. So the Western Bulldogs is one of the teams in Victoria, in Melbourne, which is the capital of AFL, of this sport. Sam's done a ton of research over about a decade into this sport, and he's also an associate professor at Victoria University. Through that, he has had a number of PhD students study under him. And when we weren't recording, he was telling me that he's been co-author in hundreds of articles as a result, which I found extremely impressive. What I loved about Sam's approach was the way that he used machine learning to educate coaches and players about the way that they make decisions, the type of data that they consider and don't consider, and then how they can learn from machine learning models how to make better decisions in different situations. That for me was such a fantastic takeaway and something that I've thought about so much actually since our conversation i think that is something that has such wide applications around helping people improve their thinking their judgment their decision making through these very advanced tools by making them transparent and interpretable really really good then we spoke about using machine learning to improve athletes performance what type of things they try to predict and understand and by understand i mean they look at what is the individual their contribution of each individual player when you have a team sport so that is really interesting and then they try to predict things like injuries in players i think one thing that he did exceptionally well was carve out a job and carve out a space for data science in an industry that was not using data science at all. Even, for example, two or three years ago, you'd see Sam on the papers because he was sitting right next to the coach during the games. He was out in the field with the players and showing them results of the analysis in order for them to make their decisions. It's really, really great. His work mixes psychology, operations research, data science all into one. I thought that that was fantastic. And then we talk more about the state of sports analytics and what are the challenges in that area. That is episode 26, a really interesting one, I thought. Have a look or have a listen and let me know what you think.
Then we have episode 27 with Dr. Mark Nasila, who is the chief analytics officer at the First National Bank of South Africa. So FNB is the name of the bank, First National Bank. And I was so impressed with him. Uh, he used to be a statistics lecturer at Nelson Mandela University, which I think is super cool. And uh, he joined FNB, so First National Bank, as a quant analyst only about eight years ago. And in that time, he went from quant analyst to chief analytics officer after having two different head of advanced analytics roles. How does that happen? How does a person do that? It's amazing. So he he tells us exactly what his journey was like. He tells us about creating and driving a data strategy across the organization, finding meaningful work. He stays quite connected to universities and he does a teaching and guest lectures and goes to speak to students about his experiences and his journey, which I thought was really nice. He tells us about the importance of data governance and analytical governance, which I hadn't heard of before, but it's something that they've implemented in FMB where both your data practices data access are governed, but also your analytical practices and approaches are governed. So they have transparency and auditability across both of those areas, which I thought was really, really good, really interesting. Something else that stood out to me in on my conversation with Mark was around creating a culture of collaboration that's not afraid to fail. He spoke to us about how he's gone about doing that and how people feel comfortable trying new things and doing good work. And also the ways that he mentors people and helps them develop in order to achieve their potential. I think it's such an important aspect of leadership to help people see and realize that they can do more than what they think they can. And I think that goes both for individuals and for teams. People can do way more than what they think they can. I think that it's so important for leaders to help their teams uncover and realize their potential and continually surprise themselves by what they're achieving. I think that Mark covered that very nicely in our conversation during episode 27. Then in episode 28, we speak to Jennifer Prenke. She's the VP of Machine Learning at Figure 8, and she's also a data strategist and expert advisor at the International Institute for Analytics. Jennifer is super impressive, and I had such a good time speaking with her. For example, she was the first chief data scientist at Atlassian. Among one among several impressive roles that she's had. She started her career as a particle physicist and has worked in high-frequency algorithmic trading, advertising, obviously Atlassian, and now in consulting, doing work in active learning, which is a, a new area of machine learning. I didn't know much about it. It's also called uh, semi-supervised. So if you think about today, sort of the big three branches of machine learning being unsupervised learning and reinforcement learning, there's this emergent branch called semi-supervised or active learning in which you have a bunch of usually unlabeled data. And through these methods, you try to identify what data is the highest value to be labeled. And then you get individuals to label that data that is the highest value data. And it means that you generally have to label a small percentage of your total data. And then you're able to make inferences, predictions and decisions based off 
from that, I think it's very exciting and something that I see huge applicability in the world since so much of our data is unlabeled. I know that at Figure 8, Jennifer and her team have been doing a lot of work around progressing active learning and applying it to real business problems with the work that they do with their customers. So it's really exciting and I had so much fun speaking to her about it. One of the other things that stuck with me from our conversation was she mentioned that one of the best things she's done for her career is choosing her manager. So she explicitly said that jobs are not about the brand that you're going to work for or the pay or any of the perks, not even the title. She said that literally none of that matters. The only thing that matters is working for a great manager, somebody who inspires you, who motivates you, somebody you can learn from, and essentially somebody who you would like to be in the future. If they have done the things that you want to do and they're able to teach you, that's the person that you want to work with. She said that it's helped her career to make decisions around jobs from that perspective. And I totally agree. I think it's definitely the way to do it. We talk about building data science teams from scratch. And another thing that stuck with me from our conversation with her was the combination between imposter syndrome and taking leaps of faith. Essentially, Jennifer has this really interesting trait that I think like many data scientists, I know that I definitely feel like that sometimes. And I know that the majority of us feel like have this imposter syndrome. And at times we feel like an imposter because this field is so vast and is moving so quickly that not one person can stay on top of everything. So by having those gaps in our knowledge and knowing us knowing that those gaps exist and feeling them so intensely, that at times leads us to feel like an imposter and having this imposter syndrome. I think that is there and will always be there for us because we're highly analytical people that we like to be at the top of our game. But what I liked about what she was saying is that you can't let that stop you from achieving, from believing in yourself, from progressing, moving forward, putting your hand up and taking opportunities and challenges. You can't wait until you're ready because then you'll never do anything. She mentioned that time and time again, she has backed herself and taken these leaps of faith that have put her in situations where she was not ready for the challenge when she walked in. But going through that tough time, she had to find ways to overcome the challenge and to make it work. And through that period of intense focus and discomfort by going out of the comfort zone onto the learning zone and, and stretching her abilities, she was able to make great strides in her career in those intense periods. That was something that I really admire. And I think that more of us should do. That's one of the reasons why A stuck with me and B, I wanted to highlight it in this summary. We talk about having a great data culture in organizations, combining, also talk about combining technical abilities and business sense and how that's very required for leadership in data science. We talk about data engineering versus a machine learning engineer. And then towards the end, we talk about keeping talent in your team and your organization, how data scientists can learn skills for business leadership and how active learning, we talk about active learning and building products for data scientists. One of the interesting things, other interesting things that came out of that conversation was we were talking about the understanding of machine learning and AI in the business community. And I mentioned that my view is that in the future, we'll have 
data scientists that learn more and more about business over time and about stakeholder management over time, and that then they'll be able to lead different business functions. So I think that if you've worked in finance for a long time and you understand it deeply and you're a data scientist, in the future, you can be CFO. Or if you've done a lot of work in marketing, in the future, you can be a, a CMO, chief marketing officer. And that in I would, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because in the future, I would love to see data scientists as business leaders across all different domains. And uh, Jennifer, she agreed, agreed with me, but she also said that what we should be doing is teaching these skills, not data science skills, teaching them to business students doing MBAs, doing an MBA program, and that it's not about them being an expert. Obviously, that's not going to happen during an MBA program, but for them to have a sense and an understanding of what data science can do. So then when they become management consultants and or when they go into, into business leadership, they can better work with data scientists or they can advise CEOs to make best use of data science. I thought that, that was a really interesting view. So that was all from us and like all those points were from Jennifer Prenke in episode 28 and she is based in silicon valley then in episode 29 we have dr klaus iflander he's the chief analytics officer at yes life which is a startup in berlin in germany klaus is a really interesting guy he did a phd in quantitative marketing he worked as a consultant both in very technical roles and in project management roles and he did those sort of before his PhD, so straight straight out of uni and had lots of interesting lessons from that. He's able to pick up patterns very quickly and draw conclusions from them very rapidly. So even if he has showed exposure to problem sets, uh, to industries or areas, he's able to draw a lot of conclusions out of that. It was something that I was very impressed by the way that his brain works. We spoke about both defining KPIs for businesses so they can make more data and better data-driven decisions. We also spoke about the soft skills of engaging stakeholders and getting them to understand and make those decisions. He was telling us about the realities of consulting, the positives and the negatives, and how to overcome technical challenges with creative solutions in your projects. He had some really great stories around using soft skills for data acquisition as they're going to see people, engage with them directly, buy them a coffee, buy them a beer, find commonalities and become friends with them and how that has helped him in his career, not only to gain friends, but to get work done. And I think it's a really great way to do it. Towards the end, we talk about how product reviews influence your buying decisions and not only yours, but mine and everyone's. And we talk about creating experiments in business. And then we talk about data science in fitness startups, which is where he is now and how uh, him and his company, the company where he's in, have been trying to make it addictive for people to get fit. That is a really interesting journey. That is um, an episode 29 with Klaus. Then in episode 30, we have Aaron Black, who is the chief data officer at the Innova Translational Medicine Institute. Aaron's had a fantastic career starting in accounting and building management information systems. He had his own company, worked in multiple industries, and then got into biology and genomics. 
he says that he is not the expert either in neither biology nor genomics, but that he loves data. But over the years, he's amassed an incredible amount of knowledge by working with experts, adding value to them by essentially teaching them about data, but also getting the learnings around the domain knowledge from them. And over his career, he's done some very ambitious projects, which he walks us through. He tells us about taking research into scaled applications and how at Inova they've been doing that work and it's so impressive. He tells us about some of the soft skills and the importance of sharing your knowledge in ways that you help people understand where you're coming from and what they need to know from it. He tells us about how you're only as good as your team members and why moving as a team is so, so important. We discuss differences in how to engage different stakeholders. And then we go into a few topics in healthcare around data management and the challenges of managing so many different types of data files and formats from so many disjointed places in healthcare and how it really is exponentially more difficult than in a corporation. And the systems are not evolving in the way that sort of web-based systems are. So there's no flurry of APIs coming into every system that then you can start to bring data in. It's a real challenge. I know that there's a lot of governments around the world that have tried to make strides in this space and that the Australian government has this mandate that hospitals need to provide data about admissions and discharges in a specific format so then it can be joined across the country and that's good and I know that other countries uh, when I was speaking to people in Spain they said that there's similar initiatives there and I'm sure in other countries as well but it's an area that it just needs a lot of help healthcare around standardizing data and using it because we will all benefit from developments in that area. We also spoke about data governance and provenance and again such a huge area for healthcare. You want to know where your data is, how it's being used, who is accessing it and for what. But also we don't want to stifle innovation, right? So how do we tackle those two extremes in the spectrum and, and come to a happy medium that we can make progress quickly but have security and comfort around our data use? We talk about data monetization and its stigma in healthcare and yeah, compared to obviously other industries like telco and banking, data monetization in, in healthcare has its very unique set of challenges that other industries don't share. Then towards the end, we talk about a few really interesting points that have stuck with me. One of them is, he said that perfection is the enemy of good. And I love that. What he means by that is, or what I understood from that, is that you can make something good quite quickly and it makes 80% of the difference. And then getting that last 20%, it takes so much extra effort that at the end, it is not applicable or not as good and not as helpful as the 80% solution. And something that I see so many data scientists falling into the trap of trying to make it perfect. And it's because we're analytical people, we're we expect a lot from ourselves and we're, we're curious. So we like to see things to the end and to the best possible manifestation of our abilities. And I think that one of the ways that we will make more progress in terms of changing this world and making it more data-driven and helping people make better decisions faster, the way we'll do that is by applying this 80-20 split that we can get to solutions that are 80% good 
very quickly and that instead of chasing the last 20%, we should move on and go to the next solution that needs an 80% solution, the next problem that needs an 80% solution, and then the next one and the next one. And that for many years to come, we can progress from one problem to the next having this 80% solution. And that way we will uplift the global capability in data science to create a much better world for us all. And that essentially in time or in very special areas, we will then need to do further work in more areas than not, 80% is way more than good enough. And the other thing that stuck with me from the conversation with Aaron was around the importance of creating and sharing your mental models. I love that. Essentially, it's like, how do you navigate the world? How do you summarize? And what abstractions have you extracted from the world around you? And can you share those with others so it can to see if it can help them or if they can enhance the mental models that you've created? And that's something that is a big one for me this year through the podcast i'll be sharing more of my summaries my views my approaches and hope to hear from you in terms of how applicable you think they are and how you think they can be improved we are all learning and it's definitely important to keep the communication open i love that that was a focus of aaron in and they came up during our conversation and that was in episode 30 and i should say aaron is based in washington in the u.s then in episode 31, we spoke with Scott Wilson, who is the founder and CEO of Wilson AI. Scott started his career pushing trolleys at Woolies. He went on to different levels of management in different industries, including Woolworths, consumer goods. I remember media with 21st Century Fox. He worked in fast-moving consumer goods in sales roles. And then he eventually became CEO of iSelect, which is a publicly listed company in Australia. And in there, the company is not only data-driven, but data science-driven in their approaches and how they pick customers, how they help customers make better decisions around their insurances and now more of the utilities and expanding product set. But one of the missions of iSelect is to take away the life admin done by Australians every day. There's millions of hours a month. And through his role as CEO of this publicly listed company, he developed a deep understanding, well, first a love and then a deep understanding of AI and through the platforms that were being built at iSelect. And then he left his role, well, uh, Scott Wilson left his role as CEO and he started his own AI company where they have a strong focus on consulting and bringing in AI technologies to help improve and automate business processes and business decisions in companies across many different industries and uh, the work that he's done there is very impressive. He comes from a strong commercial business background and, and that strong sales focus that has helped shape his approach with AI and make it real and, and tangible. And I found that so impressive. And it kept coming up in the projects that he was telling us about that he's able to make a difference in businesses so quickly. He told us about the importance of storytelling in data science and how so many companies and industries are data rich but insight poor. We spoke about the process re-engineering AI and how to think outside of the building. I think if anyone is thinking of starting an AI startup, 
or they want to work in an AI company, listen to this episode because he is able to communicate the challenges and the joys of that so well. And he also is able to tie, connect data science and the boardroom so well. His views are extremely valuable. One of the points that really stuck with me from our conversation was focus where the money is and what he meant by that and what I took away from that is when you go into a company or when you're trying to decide what work to prioritize and with where to work with your data science, where to focus with uh, your data science efforts, he said, focus in where the company makes the most amount of money and also focus where either losing the most amount of money or the, where the highest costs are. And if you can stay focused on those areas and make a difference as in if you can stay focused on those areas with data science you will make a difference and through that you will show that data science can transform a business so that i thought was a lesson that we all need to hear or to be reminded of and obviously that comes with resisting the urge to boil the ocean and focusing on top business priorities where you can make a difference where the company makes the most money or has the highest costs in the conversation, he also told us about what it's like to be a CEO of a public listed company, what the day is like, what conversations are needed, and really, really interesting points. He is based in, Scott is based in Melbourne, in Australia, and he was in episode 31. Episode 32 was with Carol Waihai. She's the head of data science and analytics at Tenjin, which is a startup in Berlin. In Germany. And Carol had such an unusual path into data science. She worked in content project management, in strategic planning, and in sales before getting into data through business intelligence. And when she did, she took some time off from her career to learn about business intelligence because she had developed a passion for data through her sales roles, right? So understanding data from a sales and operations perspective that led her to wanting to get into the data space, took some time off, taught herself business intelligence. Then she joined this company, Fiverr, she joined as a BI consultant, right? So she was a consultant and it was something like in the matter of five or six years, she went from being BI consultant to head of analytics at the company. That is so impressive. I'm sure you share the sentiment. I had to ask her, I was like, how do you do that? How do you even do that? And she said, obviously, there's a, a lot of steps in between and a lot of work, but it was um, just so impressive to go from coming in as a BI consultant and five or six years later being head of data analytics. She's very, very impressive, very capable. And just having that so that broad background, I think is an asset. In the episode, she talks about the strengths of being a generalist and how to upskill throughout your career. She told us about a focus on self-service reporting. So to help people to learn how to fish or teach them how to fish. We spoke about the benefits of gaining a reputation internally and uh, setting a strategy for data teams. One of the interesting points or another interesting point that stuck with me like in the conversation with Carol was offering analytics to many customers that have the same problem or need. So essentially getting more bang for buck from the analytics team's effort by focusing on solutions that you can easily generalize and service multiple parts of the business. That just gives you such bang for buck with the efforts of your teams and you end up seeming like you're 
adding so much value and covering so much ground by being smart in the way that you prioritize and spend your time. I think that's just so key. She was telling us in the podcast, in the interview, how she was learning technology on the job when her background was in technology. I thought that was really great and how she did that. And towards the end, she confessed that she's a recovering workaholic like many of us. Definitely, I'm on that camp with her of a recovering workaholic. And we had a lot of fun comparing notes about how we have been getting out of that space. And then another really important point that she covered was around working remotely in global companies. So she has team members pretty much all over the world. And it was great to hear about how she manages that over time. That was episode 32 with Carol and she's based in Berlin. In episode 33, we spoke with Graham McDermott, who is the chief data officer at Addison Lee. Before that, he was um, head of data or he had several head of data roles at the Automobile Association in the UK, which he often referred to as AA, the Automotive Association. He studied as an actuary or studied actuarial science, and then loved algorithms and automation. So he moved into data warehousing and then analytics. I found Graham a super interesting guy and quite funny, actually. I was just uh, laughing, laughing quite a lot through our conversation. I really had to ask him about how he got so interested in automation early on and how he got into that space because it's something really important for us to deliver with our efforts, being able to help organizations obviously today is more of a focus than than before but i guess when him and i started looking at it in our careers it was something less focused or a lower focus and super important so he told us about that he told us about his overview of a chief data officer role super valuable i found and how he's been setting up strategies and practices and teams through learnings that he did either through his career or through some books that he mentioned he told us the difference between a data warehouse a data lake and a virtual data warehouse and i think that's something obviously quite often spoken about in our space and he told us about the importance of enabling self-service data analytics and i found this as one of the themes that has come up time and time again that we need to help people in the organization to learn how to fish they need to service themselves and we need to find ways to help them do that towards the end he also mentions how to get ahead of role so if you're thinking sort of for uh, ahead of is um, obviously quite a senior role and he talks through some of the fundamental capabilities that you need to develop in order to get to that position super interesting conversation and that was episode 33 with graham mcdermott and uh, he's based in the uk and then we had episode 34 with Sally Grove, who is the general manager of Insights at the Australian Motoring Services. Sally, before this, she spent 10 years working in banking, both in the UK and in Australia. She told us about her story about working in fraud analytics in big banks and how that prepared her by doing work end-to-end in analytics. And that's something that I think a lot of data scientists, we need to focus more on being able to do work and develop the capabilities to do work end to end. So from stakeholder management and, and finding and deciding on a business problem, translating that to a data problem and then capturing or, or extracting data, preparing it, modeling it, developing the algorithms and then deploying and monitoring things in production. There's an end to end component that is important for you to get comfortable with and being able to do it by yourself 
myself and become a self-sufficient data science unit. It's such a important stepping stone in your career to have that as an accomplishment. And she mentioned how she was able to do that during her time in Freud Analytics. And through that process, focus on creating fast feedback loops and lots of iterations for you to learn quickly. And that's something point of view that her and I share quite a lot through. In my case, I see it as, as lean, sort of applying a lean process or lean startup methodology into data science. In her case, she had a short timelines and lots of pressure in fraud analytics because she had to identify fraud in credit cards and had to fix it quite quickly. So having that fast feedback and fast iterations allowed her to learn quite a lot, especially as she focused on doing end-to-end analytics and having to balance speed and accuracy. She said that in that space, you couldn't be a data scientist that does the 80-20, as in 80% or near enough is good enough. So that 80-20, she said that in in fraud analytics, you had to be 95-5, as in more accurate, but still very fast. And that develops some interesting capabilities which she tells us about. Some of the interesting things that stuck with me was the way that she has helped businesses get an understanding of data science so they're able to ask the right questions. And from that perspective, whenever there's a talks about the communication gap between business and data science, there's more often than not, there's a focus on the communication skills of data scientists. And essentially, Sally says that business needs to learn about data science as well and that we both have to meet not right in the middle but somewhere in that vicinity and that it's not about data scientists being able to go all the way over to to business without any effort from the other side so i thought that that was really good she also mentions how she took a career break after working in bank for 10 years and her and her partner went traveling for a year outstanding i thought it was fantastic I almost said that is really brave, but I think it's something that more people should do and they created fantastic memories as a result of doing that. She said that sometimes in her work, she got so caught up in delivering projects and finishing work that she forgot to work on herself, that that was something that she is striving to do more of now and in the future. And I think it's something for important for all of us to keep in mind. She said that data science is like medicine. She said that she thinks that in the future, data science is going to have more specializations, which could be by application, like marketing and finance or something else. But she said that going forward, as she sees data science specializing more and more over time. And another thing that I really enjoyed from her point of view was that time and time again in her career, she backed herself. And she took on tasks that she felt that she wasn't ready for yet. And sometimes that not only she was unprepared, but that she was sometimes she felt like she was not the best person to take on the role. But she put her best foot forward and pushed herself to take opportunities or sometimes to create opportunities in order to get that exposure and that learning under pressure. And it's really paid huge dividends for her. She's learned so much and has made fantastic strides to get all the way to a general manager position with 10 years of experience, fantastic experience. So I was really impressed with Sally. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you do too. Let me know what you think. That brings us to all of the episodes that were published in 2018. It was really interesting year, 34 episodes, which meant I think about 
30 or 31 interviews. And in the future, we'll do another episode with some of the themes that have come out of all the interviews. But this one was an overview and a summary for 2018. And just before we wrap up, I'll tell you that for 2019, as uh, requested by some of the feedback from listeners in 2019, we'll have more content from myself and we'll aim to expand from podcasts, we'll maintain the podcast as our main source, but we'll also expand to blogs and videos. So articles, written word and video format. We, during 2019, so during this year, we will look to do more collaborations with other content creators in the data space or maybe spaces that are adjacent to this one. We'll cover more topics, more sort of tangential topics that have an influence in data science and by those i well i'm specifically thinking of startups entrepreneurship and data science but also philosophy and data science and things that are well that i think are quite interesting and hopefully you do too and in terms of the guests we're looking to have some guests coming in for a second visit so let me know who you would like to come in for a second round. We'll have, you know, even greater guests coming in. And including in those, we'll have a lot of authors. Yeah, we're speaking to quite a few for this year. So it'll be a big year, really exciting, lots of learning. If there's questions that you want me to ask these leaders, if there's any particular topics or themes that you would like me to be covering, or if there's people that you want me to try to get on the show, please let me know and we'll work very hard to do so. Also, let me know if there's specific industries that we haven't covered yet that you would like to get on the show and we'll aim to do that. So in the meantime, thank you so much for your support during 2018. That was just the first year. So season one of Data Futurology in 2019 will work really hard to bring you a fantastic season two with lots more variety, great interviews, great guests, more topics and content from myself as well and expanded areas of interest. Please, as always, let me know what you think, what your feedback, what you would like more of. And also, please consider supporting the show, either through getting your company to become a sponsor or through Patreon. Thanks again for being a listener. And here is to a fantastic 2019. See you soon. Thanks. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online. Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y. So F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review 
wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.